Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the executive director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and today we are lucky to have with us Jerry Stegmeyer, a partner in Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. He focuses his practice on corporate governance, intellectual property, internet, and digital issues, especially as they relate to privacy, data, cybersecurity, and consumer protection. Jerry has been featured among the 500 most influential people in Washington two years in a row for a tech and telecom in a special issue of Washingtonian Magazine. And he's taught courses at Scalia Law School, including securities regulation. That's at George Mason University. Jerry, we're so happy to have you with us today to discuss the SEC's new cybersecurity risk management rule for public companies that was finally finalized on July 26, 2023. That was a long way since the proposed rule was published in March 2022, and we all were making predictions wrong throughout that period of time when we thought it would come. But here it is. Before we get into the details of what actually got finalized in that rule, can you give our listeners a bit of background on why the SEC issued the proposed rule and and what it covers? Sure. So as you know, Jody, and thanks so much for having me on today, the SEC has been interested in cybersecurity issues for a long time and has a rich history, you know, going back to even, you know, early internet enforcement days in the late 90s. But the most recent sort of flare-up in this area uh, has largely been a reaction to cybersecurity in the news. Regulators aren't are not much different from the public in the sense of they pay attention to what's going on, and that often drives priorities. So in February 2018, the commission issued an interpreter release that was discussing consideration of the materiality of cybersecurity risks and incidents in connection with preparation of registrants' filings. And that release highlighted the commission's existing principles-based disclosure requirements for risk factors, uh, management's discussion and analysis, description of the business and, and board oversight, and highlighted that cybersecurity incidents and risks could require disclosure of a company's material cybersecurity risks and incidents at that time. So nothing new, nothing surprising, but a lot of attention and energy on what materiality is and what those disclosures would look like and a lot of variation. And so in January 2022, Chair Gary Gensler highlighted cybersecurity as an emerging risk. And I think many of us would say, nothing emerging here. It's been here for a long time. We've been trying to get people's attention and the market certainly has had people's attention. But part of those remarks, uh, the chair suggested the need for consistent, comparable, and decision-useful standards around reporting of cyber events. And I think that was really a recognition uh, of a concern that disclosure practices were not consistent and might vary in a number of ways. 
And as you mentioned, in 2022, in February, the SEC proposed rules related to cybersecurity policies. Initially, it was for investment advisors and registered funds. And then in March, there was the issuance of further proposed rules, which related to the disclosure of cybersecurity incidents and risk management by public companies. And that's what has brought us all here today, because those proposed rules have been issued and they were final. But I think to sort of set the table, because I think one of the most important things we've all been waiting for and looking for is how do these rules differ from the proposed rules? Because the proposed rules got a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of people's hopes and dreams might have died with the finalization of these rules. And I think when we talk about compromise, you know, they say in, in a divorce, um, if both sides are unhappy, it was probably a reasonable compromise. And I think ultimately these rules, the, the unhappiness that you might hear or see is a reflection of some constructive compromise and differing opinions at the commission. So what are the what did the proposed rules uh, do or what were some key features? Um, well, they would require current reporting on material cybersecurity events and periodic reporting on cybersecurity policies and procedures. And that meant something very specific. Second, board of directors oversight of cybersecurity risk. And I'd submit the final rule doesn't change that radically. Management's role and expertise in managing and implementing cybersecurity policies and procedures. And finally, specific disclosures about the board of directors expertise in and oversight of managing cybersecurity risk. And the final rule changes that in some important ways that uh, we're going to talk about. But I think the big macro picture here at the intersection of security and securities is whether we should have cybersecurity exceptionalism. You know, should we have different and special rules for cybersecurity compared to how we deal with disclosure for all of the other material risks that businesses face uh, and how they manage that? And, and at the time, Commissioner Pierce warned that the proposals, uh, you know, would have the effect of subtly, and I quote, micromanaging the composition and functioning of both boards of directors and management of public companies. And I think for the securities lawyers, that's really where the action is. Where do we have micromanagement and where might we have differences um, in standards? And um, Commissioner Pierce further suggested that you know, effectively the proposed rule suggested a list of expectations about what issues cyber issuers, cybersecurity programs should look like and how they should operate. And so that sort of the set the battlefield for the discussion and release of this rule um, and what it means. And um, from my perspective, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the final rule, and I'm really looking forward to talk with you about that. Hopefully that sort of sets the stage, right? So it should we have cybersecurity exceptionalism? And how do the final rules differ from the proposed rules? And, and frankly, why? Well, I mean, it's had to have been a huge job for them. I think they got hundreds of comments on the proposed rule. I looked them up. Um, they aren't numbered, but they you have to scroll down quite a long ways. And and they were coming in, you know, even not long ago. So there was a big job just in sorting through all of those comments. But after all that got done, so now let's go to what they did. Give us the basics of, of the final cybersecurity risk management rule. What does that cover? Sure. So, well, first, the... the Final rule was published on the 26th, July 26th, 2023. And what the new rules do is, that do is that they specify enhanced and in some cases specific disclosure requirements related to cybersecurity. And they really are focused, I think, 
in three areas, primarily for registrants and people that follow these things to think about and know about. So the first is cybersecurity risk management generally, right? Cybersecurity as a risk area and how management approaches it um, and how it works. Um, the second is governance of strategy related to cybersecurity. So really um, helping investors ultimately to understand through disclosure cybersecurity strategy governance. And third, and the thing that I think will be most of interest most of the time in those moments of crisis, right? Those moments when you're picking who's going to be in your foxhole as an advisor are the rules specific to incident disclosure. And the final rule varies very dramatically, in my view, in some really important operational aspects for those of us that do a lot of cybersecurity incident response. And the comments and the, the, the sort of driver here was the SEC was saying they believe that greater disclosure and improved consistency would ultimately benefit uh, investors. And I think the way I think about this, you know, what's the net net of how this sort of plays out? Well, with respect to three different kinds of disclosure areas, there'll be a lot of pressure. And if there isn't pressure, people aren't paying attention to sort of follow an old rule of thumb of carpentry, which is measured twice and cut once. But yeah. the difference here in aspects of these rules is those that have to do the measuring and the cutting often will be blindfolded because they're not going to have complete information and they're going to have to make decisions, which in some cases will be forward-looking. So you have to blindly look into a crystal ball and make decisions. And you have to do that with respect to the incidents under an intense amount of time pressure. So again, we've got three disclosure buckets, Jody. One is relating to material cybersecurity incidents. Mm -hmm. Then disclosures related to cybersecurity risk management and strategy, again, for material cybersecurity risks. And then finally, disclosure related to board governance and oversight. And so that's the big picture for what the final rule does in terms of areas. Um, but as you mentioned, it's complex. There was a lot of com comments. And the SEC did a pretty thorough job trying to respond to, I think, a number of the really big picture ones that were nettlesome for us that do this work every day. So on the first two, the disclosure of the major cyber risks and then the disclosure of material cyber incidents. I mean, I can't remember. It was after a major incident that the SEC said, OK, you guys don't think you know what material is. We're going to tell you what it is. I want to say it was after Target that they came out with what is really material for these filings. People were always filing and saying basically, oh, we have risks, but everybody has risks. And, you know, it was very, very plain vanilla language. And with incidents, it was easy to find a justification for it wasn't material. And then after Equifax, I think they came out with more on materiality. So unless I've totally gotten that wrong, I think that this is about their third attempt to talk about materiality of cyber incidents, but they're also going deeper now into what do you call the material materiality of the cyber risks? What are those risks that would have a material impact on your operations or your bottom line? So I'm going to put on my uh, professor hat a little bit and say, you know, uh, as kind of a you know, classically trained person, I think there have been three waves of sort of discussion about cybersecurity risks, but the law hasn't changed 
Yeah. You know, those were at best interpretive and the law has remained the same. And the final rule emphasizes that the prior law is the rule ultimately with respect to determining materiality, which is to say, is this something that a prudent investor, a reasonable investor would find um, useful, helpful, necessary, et cetera. And I'm overgeneralizing a bit, but the kind of lodestar, I think, is, is this something that investors would want to know? Yeah. And there are arguments about that, and there's a host sort of of case law. Um, but we tend to have a regime that favors and rewards prophylactic disclosure. So in our risk factors, we disclose all kinds of risks that may not be actual, yeah. and they might not be probable, but they're things that could happen and do happen. And there's been a lot of discussion, as you were suggesting, about, well, what happens if we fail to disclose things that have happened? Right. And there's been some discussion, if you go back to sort of the Yahoo security breach and the acquisition by Verizon, yeah. you know, one of the things that was you know, significant there was something was known and not disclosed. Right. Um, but ultimately, in commentary from the SEC, I think from one of the commissioners or from the agency itself, you know, we've got some discussion of, look, we're not trying to displace and replace the judgment of the board because the boards know the business best, you know, ultimately in terms of evaluating this. So the legal standard, Jody, hasn't changed and the requirements in the final rule, uh, you know, have an effective date. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, we all go, okay, well, the dates are interesting, but here, one of the things that I think that's relevant in this kind of disclosure practice and evaluation is, there are the effective dates, and then there are what do you do between now and then if you have a data breach? You know, what do you do if you have an incident and you're evaluating reporting and disclosure? Yeah. And the rule isn't you know, sort of yet effective. So I'd actually suggest it's helpful to sort of hit those dates and then work into the requirements. Because I think for those of us who do this, there's a lot of action around, well, do I follow the rule even though it's not final, but I'm aware of it, I'm ready. And I'm talking about incident reporting here, not necessarily the other components to go right. into sort of the mandatory reporting. But, you know, quick hit sort of list. Your, your first big date is December 15th, 2023, because that's when reporting companies, all of them will be required to comply with the annual disclosure requirements, beginning with annual reports for fiscal years ending on or after December 15th, 2023. That's not long from now. That's less than six months. Coming along quickly in terms yeah. of that fiscal year ending. So remember, it's your annual reports for that fiscal year. And then uh, December 18th, 2023, another important date, because that's for the reporting of material cybersecurity incidents for companies other than smaller reporting companies, which is a special category for disclosure purposes. And for them, all other dates are June 15th, 2024. So companies that have to report material cybersecurity incidents, other than those that are accepted, will have to be required to comply on the later of 90 days after the date of publication of the adopting release in the Federal Register, which is December 18th, 2023. Let's start with the, the first one. So the requirement for the December 15, 2023, that's the annual disclosure requirements on the risks. So, you know, I think part of the problem is the people that do 10Ks and, and filings aren't 
necessarily the people that understand what is this material risk. So, you know, you might say, well, patching is not a material risk, but it certainly is a material risk if you have out of support equipment and you aren't, you know, or you or you even have in support equipment and you're not performing your patches on a timely basis. That can be a material risk, but to other people it'd be patching. We're going to call that a, a material risk. So I think that there's this, still this gap between management and the technical team in understanding what is material. And my guess is after that December 15 disclosure date, there will be a lot of people pouring through some of these filings that were made to see just what the wording looks like. Would you, do you want, is there anything you want to add on that annual disclosure for December 15 on the material risks? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things there. I think the first thing I always think of, Jody, quite practically, is the distance between the server room and the boardroom is often great, but it's been narrowing quickly for several years. So the only time I would expect a board to ever hear the word patching is when they hear it in a root cause analysis of a data incident that's caused you know severe vulnerabilities right it's not the kind of thing to be on the mindset from my perspective for the board to hear unless or except it's in the context of a basket of things in terms of programmatic oversight so when you're walking around kicking tires and asking questions asking things about you know patching is, is the kind of thing where a director seeking to be informed especially an outside one would you know get some experts whispering their ears like yourself and those are the places to sort of ask questions. But in terms of the kind of things we read about in reporting, you know, how bad guys got in or how bad things happened is not the focus in the final rule. And so the annual reporting piece, you, I think is important to look at things through the lens of material risks. And material yeah. risk, an old rule of thumb used to be 10%, you know, impacts, uh, you know, on revenue, sales, et cetera. And I was thinking big picture, and if you're a really large company, that's an enormous amount of money. But the second piece of this and the interpretive guidance I think is important is it's not just quantitative, it's also qualitative. So in the last several years, when we've been thinking about AK reporting, you know, we've had something come up that we wouldn't necessarily report in the 10K. You know, it's relevant enough now that that threshold to share. One of the things that's come up amongst a lot of businesses and a lot of people in the area is whether there's some sort of qualitative, you know, systemic deficiency in the controls. And that kind of discussion is richer. It's not one that we necessarily have in public or going to have in public, but it's going to be discussed a lot more behind the scenes because of the mandatory disclosures around those kinds of controls and the relationship between what management's doing and how is the board keeping them accountable. And especially for mission-critical regulatory risk, Jody. So we have some Delaware case law. It's not securities law. It's not SEC stuff. Um, but it essentially is looking at, you know, a heightened standard, at least in hindsight, things that are deemed mission-critical regulatory risks, in two cases called Clovis and Marshan. And what that means in terms of care mark duties, right, directors, officers and directors fiduciary duties, is if the risk is deemed a mission-critical one, you know, and I would think of that as, you know, significantly more than material, right? It's like, hey, but for, we can't have this business. And there are a lot of companies where, you know, we've all heard people say with every company, 
has to deal with cybersecurity. You know, there are only two kinds of companies that don't need to worry about cybersecurity. Or pardon me, there are only two kinds of companies that do need to. Those that have customers and those that have employees, right? It's kind of a narrow field. And, um, you know, we encounter that. So ultimately, this reminds me a lot of sort of a focused, specialized Sarbanes-Oxley exercise. And by that, I mean a lot of companies were doing things before Sarbanes-Oxley that Sarbanes-Oxley then required, but they hadn't necessarily documented or tested or evaluated. And they weren't in a position to show their homework. You know, it's kind of a side story, Jody, but my when my son was a fifth grader, he came home and he did some math work and he didn't get, uh, he got the problem wrong and he, you know, he just big red X on the problem. And I looked at it and I said, son, where's your work? And he said, well, well, dad, I did the problem in my head just like you do. I was like, but, but you got the wrong answer, son. If you'd showed your work, you can get partial credit. And I think Sarbanes-Oxley has given us sort of a roadmap. And I think this rule ultimately will too which is you don't have to be perfect in all of your processes and oversight and program, but you're going to be in a much better position to be able, if you can show your work ultimately, because when these investigations happen or the invariable lawsuits that happen over deficiencies and disclosure, if those things ever get to discovery, you can bet those are the kinds of things that will get scrutinized. Yeah. Well, and you know, with the controls, that all goes to, cybersecurity program maturity. So it's going to be a learning process, but that's the December 15th. So now let's go to what everybody's been excited about or, or exercised about, the cybersecurity incident disclosures. And those are why they made these three days apart. I don't know, but now that's December 18, 2023. I guess it's so lawyers can remember which one's three days apart. Tell us about the Disclosure requirements on cybersecurity incidents, and how did that end up um, in the wash after they went through all the comments? Sure. So, for for incident response, Jody, I don't think the effective date is really going to matter in terms of how most of us support our clients and the companies we work yeah. with in terms of how they think about disclosure, because the final rule tied back to what we thought was the law before the proposed rules, which is to say. The final rule says if it's material, you have to disclose it and it has the same meanings under the securities laws and the threshold for the disclosure doesn't change. So specifically, if an incident is deemed to be material, within four days of that determination, the registrant would have to disclose on form 8K through item 1.05 a disclosure. And that disclosure would need to describe the material aspects of the incident describe the nature, scope, and timing of the incident, as well as the reasonably likely material impact on the registrant, including on its financial condition and results of operations. What does that mean for regular people? You know, for, for regular folks, my perspective on this is, it means we need to focus on impact, not, you know, minutia of process. And there was a lot of commentary about uh, root cause analysis and the kind of disclosure and details relating to the incident being disclosed and how that could actually you know compromise the security of a business or how it could be inaccurate because a lot of times we could determine that an incident is material to the business, but the particulars of root cause or the particulars of underlying impact 
won't be known. So this is that sort of measure twice, cut once, but you have to do it blindfolded. So I think while four days looks super quick, and it's still certainly longer than the 72 hours you get for personal data in Europe, yeah. it's from a materiality determination, Jody. And there's guidance in the publication of the rule that says that process just needs to be without undue delay. So the SEC is going to look and if it took you a while to get to a materiality determination, you know, we always say to our clients, it's really important to proceed with alacrity, right? When you have a big security incident going on, it isn't necessarily the time to go on three-day vacation, you know, go on vacations and take extra holidays or take extra time or be perceived to be away and not giving it the time and attention it needs. Because that's the kind of thing that gets poking and prodding about whether there was undue delay in making a determination. Yet we know, we know that oftentimes, you know, forensically, in a lot of instances, we'll never know, or it might take 45 or 60 days. But remember here, it's after that materiality determination drives that four-day clock. Right, because when you're doing these forensic investigations, very often you don't know within 96 hours what's happened. And you may be tracking and tracing and that involves getting data from third parties and communication providers or other companies. And you may not have the data that you need to even complete your tracking and tracing. So it's something that will unfold. What, in my experience, companies hate to do is to go out and say something and then to have to keep coming back and revising it. Yeah, I, I say to my clients, look, you only get to lose your credibility once. <laughs> so going to the market with information that turns out to be false or mistaken is the surest way to do that. And yet, you know, we've all seen class action lawsuits filed where they say, oh, they knew about this for 31 days before they disclosed it. Yeah. Well, 31 days might be, you know, from the date things happened and it might not necessarily have been discovered. And so all this haggling that we have around those underlying timelines you know, often is really about something that doesn't matter to the business, doesn't matter to the effectiveness or integrity of the practice. And frankly, in fact, the fact that there's time between when an incident occurred, when it was discovered, and when it was reported, that timeline often has nothing to do with the competency, proficiency, or integrity of the program. Yeah. You, know, you can have a very mature program that will have timelines that if you just put them up on a chalkboard and you're making a demonstrative for a jury or for someone you know, well, you set the X and the Y axis, you move them far apart, people go, gosh, that looks really far apart in time. But for people who do this, you know, I've worked on incidents where the projected forensic analysis of some underlying data could be six months. And we know, you know, we're not going to wait six months to do that forensic work. Before we move on, I just want to ask, what about exceptions on the reporting? Are there exceptions for law enforcement or safety, national security, any of those things that companies can look to if necessary? Absolutely. So the, while the four-day period is a notable change from sort of the current situation, there are a couple of provisions that can protect registrants from liability if disclosure is delayed beyond the four-day period. And again, that's for a material instance. So first, is there is an exception to immediate disclosure if the United States Attorney General determines it would pose a national security or public safety risk? That's a pretty high bar, Jody, but there are going to be some companies and at least one of the commissioners, you know, said, look, this is, you know, a farce. 
um, because it's inconsistent with other existing disclosure where if there were a national security or public safety risk, you wouldn't have to disclose. So while this is a nod to the commenters, there's some uncertainty about its efficiency as being meaningful for most companies as an exception. Yeah, SolarWinds would have qualified for that for both national security and public safety because critical infrastructure was involved. If, Jody, the U.S. Attorney General makes that determination. So part of the wrinkle in this rule is you have to actually go, right? So there's always that classic discussion that's been around, you know, for the 20 years I've been doing this is, do we interact with law enforcement or the government or other regulators? And the downside risk, everyone's always, you know, heard, I'll never forget hearing Ed Strauss tell me that, you know, say this, that was maybe 2001, probably back when we were working together, Ed Strauss said, you know, but the downside is you can lose control of your investigation and response. And that's a potentially big, you know, kind of litigation consideration that I think will come into play for people that want to use that AG determination. Um, But there were people who also do it just because they'll, you know, want to have that determination made by someone not themselves. There's also another um, exception, which is uh, untimely filing of the Form 8K will not result in a loss of Form S3 eligibility. So that's kind of more for the securities um, folks. And similarly, the SEC adopted as proposed amendments to Rules 13A1C and 15D11C under the Exchange Act, a new Item 105 in the list of Form 8K items eligible for limited safe harbor from liability. So the Mm. commentary, though, makes clear that registrants should act without undue delay, determine whether a particular incident is material. You know, that process is going to be pretty uniform. Um, And I think the action really won't be the SEC necessarily punishing companies for footfalls around those determinations. But, you know, I think we can expect that if the stock price moves in response to a cybersecurity incident, you know, that's the kind of thing plaintiff's lawyers are going to jump on. Right. Well, let's move on to the disclosure requirements regarding the risk management strategy and governance. That was a big, a big focus and, and certainly one that I gave a lot of attention to. What was the outcome in these areas and when are these disclosure requirements effective? Sure. So the effective dates are that first primary date that I mentioned, you know, up above. So that's going to be for the fiscal year. Ending December 15th, 2023 will be the period for a number of these to sort of apply the ones we're talking about right now. So the first, and I usually I use two buckets, Joey. So the first is cybersecurity risk management strategy disclosures, disclosures, pardon me. And, and under Reg SK item 106 in a registrant's form 10K, so in the annual 10K, they'll have to describe their processes for assessment, identification and management of material risks from cybersecurity threats and describe whether any risks from the cybersecurity threats have materially affected or are reasonably likely to materially affect their business strategy, results of operations, or financial condition. So the original draft was more focused on what are your policies and procedures, and this is more focused on your risk and risk management and risk process. And some folks have described this as being a practical approach 
rather than a performative one, right? I think the SEC realizes having a bunch of paper in the drawer that you never look at is meaningless. This is not a papering exercise. It's a pragmatic, practical exercise. And the existence of that paper is largely so that your governance can be, you know, what we say to our clients, repeatable, sustainable, and demonstrable. That's the easiest way to get the government to nod when you're saying, look, we did a solid job here, even if there was a bad outcome or a bad incident. I don't know if you have any follow-on to that, but I can otherwise go directly to the governance and board oversight disclosures. Um, just a little. I mean, there's now an ISO standard for information governance, and there are other best practices. The FFIEC has some excellent best practices for um, director and officer uh, governance and, and risk management. And in those roles, there are roles for the board and there's roles for the C-suite. And they have different responsibilities. And so I think companies that are looking to those standards and best practices when they're establishing a governance framework, that's going to help them properly identify those material risks and focus on what they need to, to have to stay informed about those risks. So I think those best practices and standards are going to become more important pretty quickly, especially the FFIECs, you know, they're out there and they're available and they're free to people. And I think they've done an excellent job of dividing out between what is board oversight and what is C-suite implementation. I agree with you com completely, Jody. The, the, I'd, I'd add a couple of things there. One is, you know, I said measure twice, cut once. Well, you can't measure unless you have a ruler. And sometimes that ruler might be, you know, the length from your shoulder to your arm. Um, might be how you measure, but I think in general, it's going to be more precise and a need to be more consistent. So consistency is an important sort of element of this. And most folks I know would say at that sort of operational level, at that programmatic level below the board, you need to pick and have framework so that you can measure appropriately uh, and implement. But ultimately, the boards should be in a position to probe and ask questions about why did we pick this framework? Why didn't we pick another one? How does this one work best for us? And I think management should expect to be able to answer those questions. The second area outside of the risk management strategy disclosures is government board oversight. And the addition I would make there, Jody, is I think the best resource from my perspective, and if anyone uh, wanted to email me at gstegmeyer at reedsmith.com, I have some presentation and materials on these issues, but in particular, I think the National Association of Corporate Directors has the best guidance to help directors and boards in the C-suite understand how to bridge that distance between the server room and the boardroom and ultimately create accountability without you know, overseeing patching policy, for example. And the registrants have to describe the board's oversight of cybersecurity risks, as well as management's role in assessing and managing material risk from cybersecurity threats, and if applicable, identify any board committee or subcommittee responsible for the oversight and describe the processes by which the board or such committee is informed of such risks. What does yeah. this mean in plain language, Jody? I think it means the board's going to need to ask a lot more questions and management's going to have to do significantly more work to be prepared to answer those questions with that aim towards the filing. And as you mentioned, the average securities lawyer doing that 10K preparation 
is going to need help from cybersecurity experts. And they may be outside folks, they may be inside, but I think a lot of folks inside are going to be helping with information gathering and testing and evaluating. So these disclosures can happen for the upcoming fiscal year tied into that deadline. Yeah, thank you for that. So I was disappointed that they left out the requirement that was in the proposed rule that was about disclosure of cybersecurity expertise within the board of directors. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would have made boards at least assess their ability to deal with cyber risk and perhaps add some depth to the bench, but now it's not part of the requirement? So is that going to make a difference? I was disappointed. I think everybody who regards themselves as a cybersecurity expert or professional was disappointed, but I think this was the right outcome. And I really liked how the National Association of Corporate Directors sort of highlighted it, which is to say, ultimately, it's the board's responsibility to determine its membership and whether cybersecurity is a material risk or whether it's a mission critical risk is ultimately a board determination. And so if you begin from that premise, then that particular peculiar disclosure requirement you know, was unusual. But I think you sort of got to the nub of things, right? I think that requirement was in the draft because the idea was to create a forcing function to have this you know, rubber meets the road evaluation. And ironically, this may be one of these things, right? I think it's a Garth Brooks song, God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. <laughs> I don't know if this is the greatest gift, but I know many, many, many of my clients had been actively working in anticipation that that would be the rule. And so even though that isn't ultimately the final rule, in a lot of companies, we really saw and specific governance effort around this. So I think you're not only do I think your hunch was right, I know it was right, you know, in quite a few companies that I'm aware of. And I, yeah. it's been my experience. Well, it, you're right. It's a very fair point that it did. It raised awareness of the topic and it got people thinking about it. We're about out of time, but I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts about how you believe this SEC rule will be received in Europe. Do they have a similar requirement or are we ahead of them for once? I think it's a very interesting question, Jody. And the way I think about it, my wife has a parable. She says that she would use to answer this type of question. She'd say it's about perspective. So if I draw a number on the ground and I walk up to it and I look at it and I see a six, but you're standing on the other side of that number on me, you know, for me, you might see a nine. And it's still a six or it's still a nine, depending on your perspective. And my view is that breach notification laws in the U.S., have driven massive direct investment in security in the U.S. with some really distortive effects. So at the same time, the focus on personal information in those laws has been distortive. So incident response in general, for example, in the U.S., I think is often much, much more focused on personal data and less focused necessarily on material risk to the business, right? Because a lot of times all these public records that are exposed and we go through the notification Ultimately, at the end of the day, that information is already public. It's not more public by virtue of a breach. And in the meantime, I've worked on a lot of incidents where there was focus on personal information and the crown jewels, right, that we find in those cybersecurity incidents weren't receiving almost any focus because everyone was focused on those requirements. In the EU, we have that 72-hour piece. 
So what I'm trying to get to, you know, the cut to the chase piece of this is, I think that in Europe, um, historically, they were more risk-focused, you know, with personal data incidents and focused on sensitive data. And we had this sort of reflexive notification regime often in the U.S. because of, you know, 30-plus states with the kind of a strict liability notification regime. So I think the SEC's rule, ironically, um, probably pushes attention back to where it should be in terms of businesses and risk to the business. And if there's risk to the consumers, drive risk to the business, um, then we're in a better place. Um, but ultimately, I think it's a function of where your perspective is and what you think is important. You know, one thing I would say from spending a lot of time in Europe, I know we've talked about coming back and talking separately about Europe is cybersecurity in a whole bunch of respects, at least in my experience, is doctrinally and often programmatically and operationally 10 years behind, you know, in Europe specifically. So if it's a Eurocentric business, you know, it may be global, but it's Eurocentric, Eurocentric leadership. You know, I find that the thinking I see around cybersecurity strategy, you know, is often a decade behind. And I might, you know, compare it to how people have compared, you know, healthcare versus financial institutions versus other sectors in the US where you see real sectoral differences. But I'm not sure that that difference in terms of being behind in Europe and or in a different place, let's not say behind, let's say in a different place, is bad. Um, but I see things converging really quickly around in one very specific way. And that is the express recognition that cybersecurity is a governance issue. It's not something to be done, managed um, without any oversight you know, in the server room down the bowels of the building that we need to bridge that gap between the server room and the boardroom. And I think that's universal, whether it's in Europe or uh, in the United States, um, but it may vary in any given instance in a given company. And that's not a bad thing. Well, you know, when people think about Europe, Americans need to understand that they are very well-funded in these activities. And now that their ANISA, their European network and information security agency is now turned into their cybersecurity agency and it's got it's formally you know got a role that they can do things fast and they tend to be very regulatory so with good funding and a regulatory approach they can gain a lot of ground and i think that that if we don't stop piddling around in the united states we're going to find europe seize the stage on cybersecurity which i think would be a mistake Anyway, we do have to close, but first let me thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise. Yes, I do want to have you back to discuss more on the US-EU legal issues. And so thank you, Jerry. It's just been a pleasure to have you. And on the Association for Data and Cyber Governance website, we will have a couple of extra resources to refer to you and looking at this topic. And we will include in that my book, The DNO Guide to Cyber Governance, Fiduciaries in the Digital Age, which is a bestseller in the business law section of the American Bar Association. So um, we'll have resources there and Jerry's bio. And so thanks, Jerry. Jody, it's been a real pleasure. And you know, it's an honor for me to have a chance to sit down and have a conversation like this with you, you know. 
20 yeah. something years we've known each other and um, you know, part of why I'm in this field is because of you. And so uh, this has been a real uh, joy for me. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.